Well, good evening, everybody. Who's glad they came tonight? Amen. You know, I was just sitting here, and I was just feeling the privilege of the fact that we get to do this every single week, that we get to sit in a place where we can worship God aloud, without fear, where we can read the Bible and declare the Word of God, where we can fellowship together in freedom and with an expectation that He will come. Um, if you're wondering why I was thinking about that, it's because we had at our corporate prayer meeting on Thursday, we were praying for the nations, and, and we prayed for the persecuted church. And I realized what a privilege it is for us as South Africans to be as free as we are, unhindered in our Christianity. There are places in the world where that just doesn't happen, where just finding Christians to fellowship with is a real difficult thing. Um, at our World Conference last year, um, when we got back, there was this young guy who was like just friending everybody in our leadership. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we looked on his page. You know how it is on Facebook. You're not sure if you're going to friend that person or not. And then we saw pictures of the conference, and a lot of us friended him. Um, and he's from a nation called Armenia. Has anybody ever heard of Armenia? Neighbors, Georgia. Its capital is Yerevan. And it's, it's been in... It's an ex-communist country, and it's been in a bit of turmoil for a long time, but over the last sort of eight, nine years, it's, it's kind of stabilized, and it's developing its economy. Um, and it's also quite a Muslim country, and it has a, a lot of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, but very little what we're used to. And so this young man from Armenia had studied in America, had been born again in our every nation body, uh, and then went home and started a connect group. He's not a pastor. He's just one of you who went home and started a connect group, like we asked all of you to do at some point in your life. And there's a small body of believers there who are every nation. And um, as, I, as I saw him, I, I've been doing world mapping. Um, I looked in my niece's uh, geography textbook a couple of years ago and suddenly realized that Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore. When I was at school, it was still Yugoslavia and the Czech Republic. So suddenly in Europe, there were all these new countries that I'd never, ever heard of. And so I started learning the map of Bihar and the capital cities of Bihar just for fun and to keep my brain active. And so I'm, and I've become very interested in what's happening in the world. And I'd actually read up a little bit about Armenia because I'd never knew anything about it. And so when I saw this young man was from Armenia, you know, I sort of sent him a message saying hi and getting a little bit of a story. At the beginning of the year when we were fasting and praying, I was wondering if Armenia would be on the list of countries. It's not because we don't yet have a church there. So I just took it on myself, and I said, you know what, I'm going to pray for him. And I just sent him this little message. For me, just such an easy thing to do, just saying, bro, I'm going to pray for you this week as we're praying, and I'm really going to pray for you, everyone. Well, the response I got from this young guy, like that I became his brother. And I started realizing it's because he has no Christian fellowship. To find true Christian fellowship is so hard for him that this weird stranger who's like 25 years older than him in South Africa <laughs> has become a friend. And so again, I just want you to think for a moment what a privilege it is to be here. How blessed you really are. You know, at the end of last year, I spoke about the fact that coming into 2020 for the hub, we're going to be a place of revival. Well, we saw it tonight. Look around this room. This is what revival looks like. Imagine if all you had access to was two other Christians. That every time you met, there were just two other Christians like my friend in Yerevan. How discouraging would that be? 
And so be grateful for what God has done. And I really do want to honor our service teams. It takes so much to put this together so you and I can just sit and enjoy God and hear the word and just go home blessed and encouraged and full. There are so many people who come early and set up and work hard so that we can do it. And it's, it's worship team, it's our cleaners, it's our set up teams during the week, it's our sign crew, uh, the guys working at the back there on the, on the slides, it's everybody who greets somebody, everybody who makes a cup of tea. And so can we just honor them and give them a hand? Well, thank you so much for what you do. We are so, so grateful. Um, so tonight we are completing our amazing grace series, and I'm going to be talking about sanctifying grace. Um, and um, this has been such an amazing, guys, you're going to just have to run it. I don't know what's happening there. It's been such an amazing series, um, and we've really just been learning so much about grace. So I want to read from Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If you can just turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, we're going to start reading from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus chapter 2 is a really short chapter, and if you read the 10 verses before this, Paul gives some very specific and strict instructions to various groups of people. He gives instructions to older men, to older women, to young women, to young men. He gives instructions to bond servants, slaves who were part of the Roman Empire, all of them believers, all of them followers of Jesus Christ. And the most consistent command he gives in the 10 verses before this is to be self-controlled. He says it three times in the ESV, maybe a couple more times in some other versions. But, he, but every one of those groups, he says to them, you've got to be self-controlled. And he's talking to them how to behave appropriately and how to, how to act right. The reason he's doing this is because Titus lived in a town called Crete in Greece which at this time was a part of the Roman Empire. And so it literally had two kinds of historical paganism to its name. And the pagan culture was highly licentious. It was highly sensual. It was highly immoral. The pagan mindset was basically do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, to or with whomever you want to do it with. And Paul is saying to the Christians of the time, you have to look different to your world. You are no longer part of that world. You have been translated into the kingdom of light, and you have to act different. And when you read it, it, he is really strong on it. He's really pushing the commands and the structures. But then we come to verse 11, and the very first uh, first word in this sentence is what? For. So a quick English grammar lesson. For is a conjunction. It's, it's part of speech is called a conjunction. And the purpose of for is to connect sentences. But the way Paul is using it is that he's just given this quite harsh instruction, straight up like religious, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, to these people. 
But now he's connecting it to a new idea. And what does he say to them? For the grace of God has appeared. And what he's saying is, the standard I have just outlined for you is impossible for you to carry by yourself. Everything I've just told you to do, you have to do it, but you will never do it by yourself. For the grace of God has appeared. Who's glad that he came with verse 11? (laughs) We cannot do it by ourselves. We have to have the grace of God. And the grace of God is the Greek word charis. Charis. It means divine favor, unearned, the free basis of joy. And we can literally define it as the unmerited favor of God. And so the real issue of grace is that grace is all about receiving what we don't deserve. Grace is all about free gifts that come to us that we cannot earn, that we are not worthy of. See, grace has appeared through Jesus Christ. Because he was born, because he lived a life fully submitted to God, fully surrendered to the will and the purposes of God, because he was tempted in every way but without sin, because he died on a cross for your sins and for my sins, and because he rose again from the dead to win our victory, when he appeared, grace came with him. We cannot do it by ourselves. And as I said, grace is all about stuff we don't deserve. Grace is all God's work. Grace is everything His one. Then He comes to us and He presents it to us and He says, All of this is for you if you'll have it. It's free. Will you take it? But only if you want it. And so, firstly, we read that in the scripture, grace appeared to offer salvation to anyone who would receive it. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. By grace, through faith. That is how we are saved. It has got nothing to do with our works. It is a free gift of God. Not one single one of us, the very best of you in this room, is still way under God's standard. Because none of us are perfect. Not one of us. And we cannot work our way into salvation. We cannot crawl enough, cry enough, rip our clothes enough to be saved. That is entirely God's job. In the Godhead, right before we were even created, they got together and they said, we're going to create man. But there's a problem. And I think at that point, Jesus put his hand up and said, I'll do it. I'll sort that out. I'll do it. It's got nothing to do with us. It is entirely God. God sent his one and only son to die for us so we could be restored into right relationship with him. But at the same time, there is a response we have to make to grace to be saved. What is it? Can you see it in that scripture? It's that little word, faith. 
Because faith is a decision we make in our will to believe that God is who he says he is. We cannot receive the free gift without faith. And so it is by grace through faith. That is the only response we can make in being born again is we have to say yes. If you don't say yes, it doesn't come to you. And what is salvation but a restoration into right standing with God. Salvation is about relationship, first and foremost. It is not about, because we can't work our way into it, we are not slaves in this relationship. We are sons and daughters. We are cherished. We are loved. The whole reason God did this is because he wants to be in right standing with you. He wants you to be in right standing with him, rather. He's always righteous. But he wants us. And so he did whatever was required to come and find us. And it's really important when we consider the function and purpose of grace in our lives that we remember it is within the context of relationship. Now, as we have learned, we cannot work for salvation. But I fully believe because I've seen this happen in my life and happen in every other person I know who's born again's life is that once we receive salvation, we begin to do the works of salvation. Because we are saved, there are things that begin to happen in us. There are things that begin to come out of us. Now, who has ever been camping in the Kruger National Park or any park where there's lions? Anybody? Okay, a few of us have. Now, I'll explain in a moment why lions. Because, you know, all, wild, all African animals could kill you. I mean, are we aware of that? You know, like, apparently hippos kill more people in Africa than anything else because they're, they hide under the water. And when you're happily canoeing along, they suddenly come up and, well, you know, then, then you're in a fight with a hippo. And that you know you're not going to win that. But um, <laughs> why I'm saying lions is... I remember being somewhere and them warning us against you know, the wildlife and especially the lions. I don't know if the lions were ever going to come in or not, but I remember sitting there and being very aware of whether there was a lion outside your tent. But now, how would you know if there was a lion outside your tent? It would roar. How else might you be aware of a lion outside your tent? You'd see it. So the point I'm trying to make is if you would know if there was a lion outside your tent because if you took a look and you saw it, it would look like a lion. It would sound like a lion. You would be very concerned that it was about to act like a lion. But it would consistently be a lion, wouldn't it? How does the world know you and I are Christians? Do we look like Christians? Do we sound like Christians? Do we act like Christians? And so we have to do the works of salvation. And verse 12 of Titus 2 actually tells us what those works are. Because the second reason grace was given, first and foremost for salvation, but secondly for what? To teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. And here are the works of salvation. So that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This present age, today, this crazy weird world that has become so fluid that we don't know what's going on anymore. We can be anything we want to be. We can call ourselves anything we want to call ourselves. This 
present age, God requires us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly in a world that just isn't. And if you look at those three things, they're also all about relationship. What is self-control? It's my relationship with myself. How much do I honor myself? How whole am I? How valuable do I think I am as a Christian? Am I gonna just throw myself out on the street and and give myself to people who are gonna abuse me and use me and mistreat me? Or am I gonna stand in the purpose and the call of God and say no to things that I can say yes to Jesus? Self-control is all about relationship with myself. Uprightness is about living with other people. Do I honor and respect them? Do I see the image of God in them and love them because of it? Do I treat others the way I want to be treated? And obviously, godly is all about Jesus Christ. Am I respecting him and honoring him? Is he my best bud or is he my Lord and Savior? Do I just go to him when I need a buzz or do I actually know who he is and ask him to lead and guide my life? And it says here that grace empowers us to be all three of these. Grace empowers you and I to be self-controlled. And self-controlledness says no to things. I think it was really difficult for the pagan mindset to understand the concept of mutually exclusive. I feel like it's very difficult to our modern world mindset, dare I say millennials, It's also really hard to hold the concept of mutually exclusive because we kind of live in a world where we could almost do anything we wanted. In English, there's this really weird saying. It's, I almost went and bought a cupcake and I just didn't have a chance to do it so I could show you what it actually looks like. But there's a saying that goes, you can't have your cake and eat it. And I always didn't understand that as a child. But what it's saying is if you want cake, then you get cake. But if you want to eat your cake, then there's no more cake. Does it make sense to you? You can't have your cake and eat it. Do you want to have the cake or do you want to eat it? Because once you've eaten cake, where has it gone? (laughs) Okay, are you all getting it now? So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, so I finally understood what that means just like you did. But what that, what that saying is saying is exactly that. There are things in this world that are mutually exclusive. If you want this, then you have to say no to something else. If you want that, then you'll have to say no to this. This is how God has created, and it's a good thing. We hate it because it puts us in all kinds of tension. But that's exactly where we should be. Righteousness costs us something. It's sure as heck cost God something, and so how will it not cost us? And as I was preparing this week, as I have been thinking about grace and reflecting in my life, I was wondering what it would be like if everything I felt like I wanted to do, if every reaction that came to my heart, I actually made an application to grace first and foremost, to see what grace said about it. So I'm irritated in the shop and I want to lose my mind and throw my toys. Imagine if I could just write an application to Grace. Dear Grace, I'd like to throw a big screaming tantrum right now. What do you say? And then it came back, denied. 
But it didn't just come back denied. It came back and saying, but you know what? I can help you with that. Take a deep breath. Remember how good I am to you. Look at that person in front of you. Can you see me inside of them? And I was wondering, what would my life look like if every single little whim that came across my heart, I actually just made an application to grace first? How different would it be? Now, the New Testament is very concerned about our behavior. And sometimes we mistake that and we think if we just act right, we'll be fine. What are we doing? Works. We're trying to work ourselves into salvation. The reason the New Testament is so concerned about our behavior is an issue called consequence. See, God loves us so much. The Bible says it was for freedom you have been set free, not so we can be slaves again to sin. What is it saying? God loves you so much, he wants you to be free. But the choices we make put us back into slavery. So instead of using our freedom to push into more freedom, we use our freedom to go crazy and just get ourselves back into trouble. This is called consequences. Now for a moment, all of you just think about a decision you once made that brought a bad consequence. I'm not gonna ask you what it is, but just put up your hand. Who's ever felt like they've had a bad consequence from a decision they've made? Oh my word. You are all in good company. You see, God has given us free will. Every one of you has free will. Look to your left and look to your right. That person can do whatever they want to do, anything they want to do. You can do anything you want to do. God honors your free will more than you do. He honors my free will more than I do. Think about that for me. What I mean by that is there's a whole lot of bad stuff happening out in that world. Lightning isn't coming out the sky and striking people. Well, maybe one or two, but usually it's a golfer under a tree or something. But they might not be the worst people on the planet. Are you getting what I'm saying? There isn't this instant judgment just because we made a bad choice. Why? Because it's free will and God gave it to us. There's a, as sovereign as he is, there is a space where God has restricted himself in this realm. The earth belongs to man. The high heavens are, God, are God's. Your free will, you can use and abuse as you want to. What we don't have freedom of is consequence. You know, Paul writes and says, you must submit to the leaders over you. And then it talks about legal things. And he says, because the law exists for bad people. The law exists for criminals. If you don't break the law, you don't have to worry about anything. He's really practical. And this is where grace operates as well. So we can make the choice to make a baby outside of marriage with somebody we might not even like that much. But guess what? The consequential reality of your life is that you are tied to that person for the rest of your life, whether you like them or not. Can you see the space of you can't have your cake and eat it? The problem with consequences I have been a Christian for 30 years. I fully understand this problem. <laughs> the consequence doesn't come this minute or tomorrow or the next week or five years time. But after being a Christian for 30 years, I can tell you it comes. 
I'll show you some charred places on my body where the fire of God's consequences came. And the thing is, is that a moment of sin happens like this, but then consequences that just go on and get expensive and become more and more of a thing. Because now you want to live right, and now you want to live at peace, but there's all the stuff. And this is why the Bible talks to us about our behavior. But grace has appeared to teach us to say no, so that we will be consequence-free. In this translation, in the ESV, it says that grace has come to teach us. Grace teaches us to say no. In a lot of other translations, it says that grace trains us to say no. And this word train comes from a Greek word that means to properly train up a child so that they are mature and realize their full potential. This requires necessary discipline, which includes administering correction. A scripture we do not like, Hebrews 12 verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Who's ever been disciplined by God? You don't have to put your hand up. Some of you are brave. If you've been disciplined by God, what does that mean? He loves you. If you've been chastised, that's a word we don't like. It literally means punished. (laughs) Then what are you? Loving parents protect little Johnny from putting his hand on the stove. Loving parents protect little Johnny from running out into the middle of the highway because he has a fascination with fast cars. That might require a bit of shouting. That might require a swatting away. It might even require a good fox law. And may we learn to discipline consistently and in love. But I can tell you this, little Johnny may have been startled and upset and freaked out in that moment, but when he grows up and understands, he is so grateful for his life and for his hand that he knows his parents loved him. (laughs) Only longer thinks that's true. Um, And this whole thing comes back to this issue of relationship. God is in relationship with you, not for what he's going to get out of it, not for fun and giggles and just whatever, but he's in relationship with you to see you formed into his image and to see the purpose he put inside of you manifested to bless the universe. Have you ever prayed that prayer, God, do whatever you need to? Then why are you surprised that you got shouted at and slapped? He disciplines those he loves. And we've got to make our peace with this. Another thing I've had to learn, I make mistakes, then I blame God. I make mistakes, and I'm so upset at the consequences that come. That's called immaturity. And we have to grow up in God. And this brings us to this concept of sanctification. Now, in the scripture I just read, it never uses that phrase. But verse 12 describes both the process and the effect of sanctification. It's a big English word. It means to be made holy. It is the process of advancing in holiness. It is how God purifies us. It is doing the works of salvation. 
Philippians 3 verse 12 is a short description that Paul gives us of his process of sanctification. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. It is a process. It is not about achieving perfection. It is about allowing the Lord to wash us and cleanse us. What it really is about is agreeing with God in everything. It's figuring out, oh, my way isn't that great sometimes. But God's way is hard. It costs me. But man, the consequences are awesome. And so we have to be willing to embrace this process. It is also not magic. We don't read enough Bible and then there's this lever in heaven and suddenly we're like, ping, you know, like our games on our iPad and suddenly gold coins and flowers are flying off all over. The, that's not how it works. It is an intentional decision of your will to submit, to choose him over and above yourself and the world. It's simplest definition. The simplest definition for sanctification is being conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We hate that word conform. We all want to be unique and special. Well, Jesus is the pattern, the model. Whatever your unique purpose in life is, it's in Jesus. He has a miracle about conforming to the image of Christ. As I conform to the image of Christ, I start looking more like him. I also start looking a whole lot more like myself because I find my identity in him. And so Ntando and I are both on a journey of being conformed into Jesus. We look a lot like Jesus, but both of us start looking a lot like ourselves. We, this is not about robotic obedience. This is about us loving our God back so much that we do whatever he requires from us to do. And sanctification involves two things. It involves abandoning the old and embracing the new. Renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions involves turning away from the ways of the world. Mutually exclusive. You can't have your cake and eat it. If you look like the world, you don't look like Jesus. If you look like Jesus, you don't look like the world. This is why Christians are persecuted. We shake up the status quo. We make people nervous because we don't look like the world. Living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age entails living according to how God's grace enables us for godliness. God takes us as he finds us. I think Auntie Joyce Meyer said this once. God takes us as he finds us, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Auntie Joyce Meyer is awesome. <laughs> She's a little scary. But she said, God loves us just as he finds us. Who has that testimony? I know God found me in a deep, dark space. But he loved me as he found me. But guess what? He didn't leave me there. If I was trying to preach the, like I was when I was 15 when Jesus came and saved me, you would be horrified. You would just get me off the stage as fast as you can. Because God loved me so much, he changed me. And he's still doing it, and he's doing the same with you. 
1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. However, Galatians 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And this is the interplay of grace. The beauty, the wonder, the miracle of grace is there in 1 Peter 4 verse 8. No matter how far you have fallen, no matter what you have done, no matter how depraved you have been in your life, grace can bring you back into right standing with God through your faith. You just ask and there you are. Like that. Isn't that amazing? But once we are there, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. What you sow, you shall reap. Our actions are seeds that we plant, whether for good or bad, that will grow into a harvest that we will reap. And as I've said, we have full choice. We have full freedom of choice. We do not have full freedom of consequence. What is so great about God, and I think all of us can tell, even when I've made bad choices, even when I'm living out the consequences of my own sin, God is still there to help me. He still comes because his eternal promise, his unconditional promise is that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you search for him, you will find you, him. And in the middle of your sin, he will come and he will help you. But you will still live through the consequences because he is true to his word. Sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions will always affect my relationship with God. The reason for that is because any unconfessed or unrepented place in my heart is a place I will never open to him. It's a place where I have allowed shame and guilt to come in, and so I will never show it to him. And God will not force anything out of me. It's a relationship. If you ever, you know, girls have those diaries with the lock on it. God is never gonna go into your room and secretly pick up your lock. I mean, he already knows everything in any case. But the point of this is until you unlock your diary, your space here, and you tell God, this is what I'm thinking and doing, you will never have intimacy with him in that space. And so you're restricting yourself, but you know what? You're also restricting God. You're affecting God. Because he wants all of you. He wants you to have the full blessing that he has for you. And so this is what grace does. Grace gives us boldness to confess our sin. Now we've already spoken about this. God knows everything. When you did it, did lightning strike you? Well, you're here tonight, so I'm gathering not. So when you confess it, is lightning gonna come and strike you? That's that scripture about where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. When you actually bring your sin out into the light, God's grace abounds because now the point of grace is happening. Come back into relationship with me and then let's help you make better choices. We misapply God's grace when we make up our own standards of righteousness. And we do this all the time. I have done it because it seems too high, because it seems too unfair, I make up weird little spaces. These are three things I have sat and counseled in my office. I can mistreat unbelievers because they hate God. I can take this money now because when God blesses me, I will pay it back. I'm a good person. You know, pastor, 
we committed to each other a year ago, and we're married in our hearts, so it's okay that we have sex. I mean, we didn't expect the baby, but you know. Paul says in Galatians that when we do these things, we are mocking God. We are soothing our consciences and trivializing things God knows will cause damaging consequences to us later. And so grace, choose grace, choose grace, choose grace. And the best way we can allow grace, the best way we can be trained by grace to say no is to confess our sin, is to let the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit us. He disciplines those he loves. Conviction is all up to you. The Holy Spirit just comes and shows you what you're doing wrong. It is your choice if you run for the darkness or dive into the light. And that's grace. No lightning, no striking dead in that moment. Just a choice that's offered to you, life or death. Hide for another year or come into the light now and feel the freedom. And remember, conviction is not feeling bad. God doesn't care about you feeling bad. Conviction is not wallowing in self-pity for three years to try and make yourself good enough to come to him. Conviction is, oh my word, God, you are right. I didn't get this, but now I see. I am wrong, and you are right. And then you confess your sin, and you repent of it. And repentance is also not feeling bad. Repentance is doing something about it. I preached a whole sermon on this in September. If you didn't listen to it, go get it. It's on our, on our uh, podcast. I think it was August or September. It's literally simple. It's called repentance, what? Confession and repentance. That's what it's called. (laughs) Go and read it. And so to summarize, Titus 2 verse 11 to 12 says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so I just want to open an opportunity for you. If you're in that second part, the, the, the self-control, the uprightness, the godly lives in this present age, if there's a space where you know some conviction has come to you and you just need to repent, just do it right now. Just close your eyes, open your heart, just let Jesus see that space. Father, we thank you for your grace right now that as we repent, Lord God, you pull us into the light, that as we confess as we open up, as we release, Lord Jesus, you come and restore us into a right relationship. I'm just gonna give you a minute, just make right with God. We invite your grace right now, Lord God. Train us, teach us how to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Thank you that your forgiveness is showering over us right now. It's not about you feeling bad. It's about you saying, God, I need your grace. Receive his forgiveness now. Receive his forgiveness. to all people, if you are realizing that maybe you've never really 
asked for salvation, that you've never received salvation, that you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Just where you are, in your heart, would you do that? Would you just go to him and say, God, I need you to be my God. I need you to be my Lord and Savior. And then the Bible says clearly that if we acknowledge him before people, he will acknowledge us before his Father. So just as an act of faith, if you prayed that prayer, if you said, God, I need you to be my God, don't be scared. We are with you in this moment. Why don't you just stand up, bring your belongings. If, you brought a, if a friend brought you or you're here with a friend, bring them along too. You're not gonna miss a ride or anything. But if that's you, if you prayed that prayer in your heart, why don't you just stand up and come down that we can just celebrate with you in this moment. Yeah, if that's you, we see you. Come on, come stand up. Come down the front. We love you and we just wanna celebrate with you. I'll just ask the lady to come down. We'll pray for you at the end of the service. But Father, we just thank you for your goodness. Just where you are, thank you for his grace. Thank you for his grace that took you where you were, but is now changing you. Thank him for what you're gonna become as you conform into his image. There's nothing like your grace, Lord. Your goodness, your mercy, your truth. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Longer.